Whoa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good night. This is Connor Hawley of the Golden Hours Podcast, and this is a quick little GDP minute for the GDP famo. Hustling, baby. Background and episodes. We just had Dr. Robbie Goldstein on the podcast, and Robbie, not only is this guy running for Congress in the 8th Congressional Eighth Congressional District, but he's also a lead infectious disease doctor at Mass General Hospital. So probably the best hospital in the world. He's a lead infectious disease doctor during COVID times, and he was treating COVID patients while maintaining a campaign. That's insane. I can't even imagine what it's like. And he talked in depth about what his procedure was like as a doctor, how he kind of saw COVID coming, his thoughts on protests right now, because he's very pro-Black Lives Matter, obviously. He's a very, very progressive candidate. And he um, talked about protests, but it also kind of worrying him that a bunch of people are gathering. He talk- He's openly gay. He talked about what it was like coming out and some of the stuff he's dealt with in politics. And um, really interesting dude. Definitely a hustler, sleeps six hours a night. I'm sure he works literally an 18-hour day every day, and he's running the 8th Congressional District. So really enjoyed the conversation. I hope you guys enjoy it as well. Again, I think he did a really good job at simplifying some of these complicated political topics, especially for people in my demographic, like in their 20s, who kind of get politics but don't like really understand all that stuff. Um, hope you guys enjoy. And again, if you like the podcast man and you know we're pumping out that fire product please just share it with a friend that's all we ask it's all word to mouth that's how gdp is growing step by step the gdp train keeps moving baby all right shouts out to lexi matthews for producing this one hope you guys enjoy golden deer productions golden oh oh wait was that not it enter just you forgot to enter I'm Robbie Goldstein, and this is my golden hour. All right, Gossip Squad, say what's up to Robbie Goldstein. Hello, how are you? Hi, Robbie. Oh. Hey, everyone. You're on the phone with Lexi, Sarah Slugs, and Riley. Great. Well, hey, man, it's great to meet you. Great to meet you. You made it off the boat. Yeah, I, I apologize, and I'll that's okay. give a, that's, that's a good way to start. Um, we were doing some location scouting for our film. And I thought it was a tugboat, but apparently there are no such thing as tugboats in Boston. Apparently that's like a very like Louisiana river type thing, Marco Polo type deal. But I was on the phone with Robbie and some dude came up to me and harassed me. He's like, get off the dock, man, get off the dock. And then Robbie was very patient to just stay on the phone with me. He's like, Hey man, you want, you want to call back later or something? (laughs) It's you know, we got through, we got through the conversation. That was totally fine. And we're here. It sounded like you were very busy at the moment. Um, well, yeah, we're going to shoot there, which is sweet, but I don't think anybody is busier than you, man. (laughs) Um, it's been a busy few months for sure. So before we move on, can you just give a quick synopsis of who you are and what you do? Yeah, exactly. So, uh, I'm Dr. Robbie Goldstein. I am an infectious disease physician at Mass General Hospital. I'm also a primary care doc over at MGH and I'm running for Congress in the eighth district of Massachusetts. Um, dude, do you have like any time to breathe? <laughs> I have a few hours to sleep each night and, uh, that's about it. <laughs> well, so question, how do you prioritize sleep now? Because when I had started out the brand, everyone was always like, Oh, you're starting a company, man. Like get as little sleep as possible. I've realized over time that sleep is so vital in terms of making effective decisions in your day. Do you prioritize it? Uh, I prioritize a certain amount of sleep. So I know that I need six hours to be able to make good decisions and to function and to be who I need to be. But, um, you know, medicine has taught me a tremendous amount. One of the things it has taught me is how to function on six hours of sleep, how to prioritize your day, how to make sure that you can get through everything you need to do. You know, medical training is, is a marathon at a sprinter's pace. And that is the same thing that you have in a campaign too. So are you like much sharper off eight hours as opposed to six? Is it noticeable for you? No, not noticeable at all. <laughs> so like last night you got a smooth six hours and you were fine. I was fine. Yeah. yeah. I did all right. We'll see. Maybe at the end of the interview, you'll say you should get two more hours of sleep. I know. Maybe you'll start <laughs> napping during the end of the interview. Yeah. <laughs> um, so at what point, 
I, I guess we could just start with the whole infectious disease thing. So yeah. you, the past three months have been in the ward at like the busiest hospital in Boston, taking care of coronavirus patients, correct? I have. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I trained in infectious diseases, um, largely before COVID most of my time in the hospital was actually taking care of primary care patients, but I'm a fully trained infectious disease doc. And most years I would do somewhere between um, six to eight weeks of inpatient infectious disease work, uh, taking care of folks uh, that are in the hospital. Obviously COVID happened and our entire infectious disease division really reacted in the way that they had to and said, we're here, we're gonna do what we need to do. And as the hospital got busier and busier and busier, more of us were working on the front lines. Um, we, we sort of regionalized the hospital and in many ways we divided and we conquered and we took care of as many patients as we had to take care of. So I had um, a period of time where I was inpatient in a couple of ICUs that the hospital had set up specifically to take care of people coming in with COVID and was with them all day long, um, you know, seven days a week, just making sure that we were able to do what we could for the people that were coming in. But then there's a lot of other tasks that we have to do as infectious disease docs, like infection control and uh, answering questions through the night that you know, we were all being a part of to make sure we could take care of folks. Now, when the coronavirus had started forming like late February, when people were starting to be like, oh, is this thing going to hit the US? Did you kind of know like, yeah, this is going to be a big deal? Yeah. So I say this a lot when I'm out on the campaign trial that in infectious disease in our world, we started talking about it at the end of December, which was when the first case reports were coming out of China. Because we've been talking about a pandemic for a very, very long time. Um, we've been talking about it through SARS, through MERS, through Ebola, through all the different flu strains that have come through. We are constantly talking about our preparedness and our ability to respond to a pandemic. When we heard the case reports in December and in January, and we saw the numbers happening in China, it was very clear that it was only a matter of time before this came to the United States, and we had to be prepared for what was about to happen. Yeah, but how do you prepare the mass healthcare system in two months? Like, did you guys already start taking action at that moment, or? Yeah, so you know, I have to say, and um, you know, a huge shout out to the folks at MGH. We were prepared in many ways because we've been preparing for a decade. We've been preparing for a respiratory virus to come to the United States and for us to have to convert our hospital into what it was converted to for COVID, which means making sure we know how to use personal protective equipment, making sure we have enough personnel, making sure there's a flow through the hospital so that people can get from the emergency room to the inpatient units and wherever they need to go. Um, we we're preparing and doing drills and making sure we were ready, you know, 10 years ago in anticipation of what was happening. Even with that though, this was so far beyond what any hospital was really had the capacity to deal with that everybody had to, to activate. Everybody had to learn personal protective equipment. Everybody had to make sure that their unit, their whatever group they're working in was prepared for this pandemic. And that's what made it so hard, right? the scale of this pandemic is so much more challenging. Now, did you, I mean, MGH is like notoriously known as one of the best hospitals in the country, if not the world. Did you guys still have enough equipment? Was there ever like a scramble for like more PPE? We, you know, because uh, MGH is part of a much bigger healthcare network, we've had a lot of success in making sure that we have the personal protective equipment that we need. So I, I know I walked into the hospital every day, I was handed a mask to wear. When I went to a unit with folks with COVID, I was given an N95 mask. We had enough face shields and all of those things. But even in that system, we were doing the, the types of cleaning and reusing of equipment that six months ago would never have been done in an infection control setting. Now, we did it, we're doing it safely, we're doing it under the guidance of our infection control unit at MGH, but it's just really, I think, important to recognize that even a huge healthcare institution like MGH has to implement some of these reuse and clean procedures because of the sheer volume of patients that we're seeing. Are you just like totally tired of washing your hands by this point? 
No, I, I mean, even before this, I was washing my hands about 50 times a day. So, you know, now I'm doing it 60 times a day. Um, but that's just, that comes with the territory. That's called being an infectious disease doctor. <laughs> I know. I, I think I up my volume of hand washing from like three to eight. And I'm like, I got calluses all over my hands now, man. It's wild. Yeah, that was, that's kind of old hat for me. <laughs> <laughs> so what was your procedure in terms of like, do you live with your husband now? Yes. Yeah. What was your procedure in like coming home and like seeing your husband? Were you like, were you guys sleeping in like separate rooms? Were you like keeping your distance from him? So we weren't, we had, um, it's hard to describe this if you can't see our place, but there's a sort of a long hallway when you come into it's, our it's like a our, dark abyss behind you, man. It's scary. Yeah. <laughs> looks like there's nothing behind me, uh, but there's a long hallway. So I would sort of come in, I would open the door, um, take off all of the clothes that I had worn at work and any of the bags I had and anything that may have come from the hospital and leave it there and directly put it into the washing machine so that we can get things cleaned. I would take a shower um, to sort of decontaminate myself and do what I needed to do to keep myself clean. And then afterwards, we'd sort of go on with the rest of the day. Um, you know, I, I think there are, there are tons of stories of folks who got a hotel room while they were working in the hospital or tried to sleep in a different bedroom. Um, you know, we did everything we could, given the space we have, to make sure that we were keeping ourselves safe. That just sounds so unbelievably taxing. Like I couldn't imagine like you're putting in like a 16, 18 hour shift at the hospital and then all you want to do is just go home and like put your feet up and watch TV. And then like you have to go through this entire procedure to like make sure that your loved ones aren't totally, totally destroyed by this thing. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's what we do. And one of the things that I've been saying a lot in this whole process is I'm not surprised that healthcare professionals stepped up and ran into the fire to help protect people. This is what we do. This is our background and our training. We know that we are here to help people. And sometimes that means putting ourselves at risk. Um, but we also know how to try to mitigate that risk, how to make sure that we are keeping ourselves safe and other people safe in that process. At the time, who who could you go and talk to about like, yo, things are like crazy right now. Like how did you keep your own sanity during when it was like really crazy? So I have amazing friends in the hospital and outside the hospital. Um, but I think in particular it was my friends who are physicians and nurses and healthcare professionals who were experiencing the same thing that I was experiencing and being able to go to them and say, this is what my day was. And not to normalize it, because none of this is normal, right? None of what we're doing right now is normal. But to at least put it in perspective and to say, yes, this is really hard. It's hard for all of us. And to have that, um, that connection was really, really helpful through it. It allowed me to uh, you know, cry when I had to cry and get angry when I had to get angry. And then to also be hopeful when I needed to be hopeful, because I had other people that were going through it at the same time. I've always wondered this in situations like this, especially with like real soldiers, when you hear that, like the entire city is supporting you in something like this, like go frontline workers, go essential workers. Do you actually feel that? Or is it more just like, okay, that's just like what they're doing? No, you feel it. You feel it. Um, you know, like I said, we healthcare workers, we're doing this because this is our job. This is what we are trained to do. No one did this because they wanted glory from the experience of doing it, right? We're doing it because we want to take care of people. But I, every time I walk down the street uh, and I, I, you know, I have scrubs on or it's very clear that I'm walking to Mass General Hospital or I'm going into work, people on the street who I don't know would come up and say, thank you for doing what you're doing. And that acknowledgement that, it, you know, it's, it, it is sustaining and it is really amazing to feel that community connection. Um, but it also in some ways is, is it sort of made me look and say, I'm not, I'm not doing anything different than I did six months ago. I'm taking care of patients. I'm taking care of people who need me to take care of them. And of course I'm doing this right now. Um, I would do this even if there wasn't a pandemic. But when they came up to you, they kept their distance, right? Yes. Yeah, of course. All right, man. Just want to make sure. 
Yeah. Um, one, one question when the whole quarantine started, as I had said on the phone, we had Joe Kennedy on the show. And one of our questions was like, how do you better prepare the mass healthcare system moving forward for something like this? And he was like, to be honest with you, like even the coronavirus as deadly as it's been, it might just be a precursor to something a little bit worse. So how could now, and now that you're dipping into politics, mm -hmm. how would you better prepare the healthcare system for, for the sequel? Yeah. Well, you know, I think what's really important to point out is that we were not as a nation and in some ways as a state, we were not prepared for COVID. It wasn't because there weren't smart people with the right data and the right evidence to make the decisions, um, but it's that those people weren't at the table making the decisions. Right. So um, to give you an example of this, right, we've talked a lot about uh, our personal protective equipment stockpiles in this country over the past six months, and we were really not prepared. We did not have enough personal protective equipment to go all across the country. That was because of decisions that were made in Washington, D.C. by politicians who don't necessarily understand healthcare and didn't have the knowledge and the evidence base to make the right decisions. And so they made poor decisions that resulted in us being unprepared. I think that the answer here is bringing in the experts, right? It is making sure that there are folks like me, healthcare providers that are in Washington making decisions. It is using data to drive our decisions around reopening. Um, it's making sure that the epidemiologists and infectious disease docs and public health experts are having a say about how we open our schools safely how we make sure that we are ready to move to the next step. And then once we're through all of this, right, like once we do get back to some sense of normalcy, um, once there's a vaccine, an effective treatment for COVID, whatever it may be that allows us to get there, that we keep those people there. We keep those experts there and we allow them to get us prepared for whatever might come next. Because you're right and Congressman Kennedy's right, this is one experience that we're having, but we are likely to see that there's going to be another experience uh, in the future, another pandemic, another something. And we've got to be prepared for that in the way that we weren't prepared this time. Now, when you say there's, I don't want to fear monger here at all, but when you say there's another one coming, is that based on models you've seen or like, like data you've seen research? It's based on, on how infections work, and it's based on patterns that have been presenting themselves over time. You know, we have seen just in the past two decades a number of infectious disease outbreaks that have spread in ways that they wouldn't have spread 100 years ago. Now, there's a lot of reasons for that. Some of that is that our world has changed, and we are more international. We get on planes. We are getting all over the place in a, in a much quicker manner, so things are able to spread. But some of it um, also has to do with climate change, and we have to talk about that, and we should make sure that there are experts that are, are having that conversation too. Climate change is certainly changing the patterns of infectious diseases. Climate change is changing my outdoor workouts too, man. Yes. <laughs> climate change is changing a lot of things. I was cramping like a maniac yesterday morning. I was screaming. I was running through Quincy. Everyone's like, what's wrong with this guy, man? <laughs> um, real quick, what when did you really catch the politics bug? Like, have you always just kind of wanted to get into it or cause most people become doctors. They like slave their whole lives to get through school. And then you finally become a doctor and you finally start catching those checks and you're like, okay, I've like risen up, but someone transitioning out of it is like very untraditional. Yeah. So I get this question a ton because people oftentimes look at me and say, you did all of that training. Uh, you went to school for so long, and now you're going to leave that profession and go do something else. And, and my answer is always the same, which is that I actually think medicine and government are way more similar than we allow ourselves to believe. At their core, both are about making sure that someone can live a healthy life. They're about making sure we have healthy communities all across this country. If government does its job well, they should be functioning the same way that medicine is functioning. Um, so it doesn't feel like a huge transition for me to go from one to the other. But um, I, I guess I'll say there was not a lightning moment. It wasn't like all of a sudden I woke up one day and said, 
I'm going to run for Congress. It was a series of conversations with my patients. It was years of building programs with NMGH and watching how systems can change, recognizing the power of driving things forward. Um, it all compounded year after year and got me to a place where, you know, in November of 2019, I felt like now's the time. Let's do this. Let me announce this campaign and run for Congress. Yeah, but there wasn't like that one catalyst moment when you're like, all right, like I got to go for the eighth district. Let's go. There, there was not. I wish there was because it would make a much better story. But um, no, you got to dress it up, man. You got to make it seem like it was totally cinematic. Exactly right. It would, I mean, when I write the book, I'm going to have to come up with some great story there. But um, to be honest, it it was really a series of conversations. You know, I, I for much of my life, I've been a primary care doc for patients, and I sit with them and I talk to them about their lives and. And it's not just about healthcare. I don't just talk to them about prescriptions and insurance cards and those things. I talk to them about, do they have a safe home? Do they have food? Do they have a job? Um, and when you have those conversations and you hear the challenges, it's really hard not to start thinking, how can I fix this? How can I make this better? What are the systems change that we need to make happen so that everyone can live a healthy life? Now, and we'll transition out of the COVID stuff real quick, but just in terms of preventative measures outside of wearing a mask and social distancing, what things would you do to, for people to boost their immune system during this time? Because sleep is I'm sure sleep, but like, has anybody said anything about diets or vitamin supplementation that might help combat it? We don't, we don't have any data on that. We don't know that if there's any supplement or mineral or vitamin that may change your immune system that, that allows you to protect yourself from COVID. But um, we, the, the best thing that you can do is to, to be as healthy as you can possibly be, which means try to get sleep, try to eat well, try to exercise, try to do the things that are going to really sustain your body so that you don't become weakened and then therefore more susceptible to the virus. But all of that in many ways has to be done with the social distancing and the mask wearing and the hand washing and all of the other very important infection control measures that we've been talking about since March. I hear you, man. Are you totally like coronavirus out? Are you totally done with the whole thing at this point? <laughs> I'm not. I mean, this, this is my life. This is my training. This is what I, um, I train to do. So I'm happy to talk about it. I, I just, I want to see us moving in the right direction. I have to be honest and say that the numbers over the past week have been really concerning. Um, when you look at the overall United States numbers, we're up 20% in new cases over the past week. Um, there are states that are further along than Massachusetts and they're reopening that have sustained record numbers of cases day after day over the past week. I know Florida. That's really concerning. Florida, Arizona, um, you know, California has increasing cases. Texas has increasing cases. These are huge states, lots of people. Very concerning to see those numbers. And I, I think we've got to be honest that that's moving us in the wrong direction. And so how do we address that? How do we get those numbers to decrease? Uh, what are the, the uh, policies that we have to put in place to make sure that we can move ourselves in the other direction? It's just going to be so hard at this point to like, say, yeah, we're going to reopen for like two weeks, then close back down. Like, yeah. how are you going to do that? Yeah. I mean, I think we're all feeling a little bit of the fatigue, right? Of, of how many, how many nights can you spend inside your house? How many times can you do a socially distant walk? Um, how, how often can you wear that mask uh, that is hot and humid? And it's, it's upsetting and it's frustrating and it's tiring for all of us. But we have to really think about the much bigger perspective, which is how do we do our best to decrease the overall infection rate, the number of deaths? How do we get ourselves out of this in the long run and not think so much about the short term? On a, pol on a policy tip though, like how, how would you say, okay, look, things are getting bad again. We got to shut back down. Who is going to comply with that? Yeah, well, you know, we did it once. We can do it again, right? So I do think that we can actually implement decisions that are based on data. I think when we see numbers of cases increasing day after day, when we see outbreaks happening in various places of business, that suggests 
that our reopening policy needs to change and that we may need to go from whatever phase we're in back to phase. Now, in Massachusetts, we have seen sustained decreases in numbers. We have followed the data closely, and we are now moving forward with our reopening based on the data that are available. That's not the case in Arizona or in Florida or in Texas. And I, I really challenge those states to say, let's go back to the data and recognize, is it safe for us to keep moving forward with reopening? Or should we be taking a step back? Um, and that is the conversation that we have to be having at the policy level. Dude, we live in the best state in the country. Uh, well, I, I agree with that. I think that's true. Um, I imagine most You're of you- are running here. You better think that's true, man. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, sweet. So question, it is Pride Month. Yes. And I think you are the first openly gay dude we've had on the show. And so I would just want to- Well, dude, shouts out to you, man. I can't imagine it being totally easy to be gay in politics. I'm sure it's a a grind. It's, you know, I I have to say, I've been out for a very long time. Um, I've been married to my husband for over 10 years, and um, we've been together for almost 18 years come come August. Um, And and so for me, this is who I am. And I I don't hide that. I don't... um, I'm not ashamed of it. I am just out and proud and put it out there, right? That this, this is me. Um, I do have to, to acknowledge, right, that there are still people, even in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, who are not as comfortable with um, LGBTQ identity and with the community. And, and that is something that I think we need to keep working on. But my, my entire career has been about supporting the LGBTQ community, making sure they have a safe space making sure that they feel comfortable and affirmed in who they are. Um, and that had to come from inside, right? I had to be comfortable with who I was first and be, be able to affirm my own identity so that I could help others do that. Now, were your, were your parents initially supportive when you came out? Yeah. So, I, you know, I, I, in many ways, have an incredibly wonderful and very lucky story, um, which is not the story of so many LGBTQ folks across this country. I came out to my parents and my sister and had support, um, had them really just hug me and welcome me for who I am, affirm me for who I am. And they've been by my side ever since. Um, sometimes I think they maybe like my husband more than they like me. Uh, right. I think, um, there's, they're, they're wonderful, wonderful people. That's not the story for a lot of folks in this community. And I, I know that that's the, the story of many of my patients, um, where they really struggle with family and friends and uh, mentors and teachers and, and people that they look to who don't affirm who they are. Now, what was it like for you coming out? Were you nervous as hell? Like, did you sit, were you like, Hey family, we got to meet in the living room at like 12 PM type thing. Like, what was that like? Yeah. Yeah. So of course you're nervous, right? I mean, it's, um, it is a really scary moment to be very vulnerable. And as much as you know family, as much as you, you know, you've spent your whole life with family, you don't know what the, what the next word is going to be and how they're going to respond and how they're going to react. Um, I remember exactly the moment. I remember actually we sat on my sister's bed um, and the family was there and I shared um, who I was and, and I waited. And I, what I heard back was, we love you. What I heard back was, um, that is not, that doesn't matter to us. What matters to us is that you're our son and we love you and who you are and who you love and we will always be here for you. Um, and I, I you know, I, there were tears and <laughs> there were smiles and there were laughs and there were all of the emotions that you could possibly think of in that moment. Um, but of course, going into it, I was so nervous. Right. Dude, I couldn't even imagine like growing up in a household and like you grow you grow up around like four or five people and the whole time you're just hiding something from them the whole time. Like yeah. I, did did they say like we know or like we're not surprised? Not in the moment, but you know, later on there's that conversation of, oh, we thought maybe, uh, <laughs> oh, oh, this happened at some point, right? And uh, you know, I think everyone probably has those moments where they aren't aware of what is happening around them and, and how aware everyone else is. But um, in the moment, it was more of just an affirmation. 
than um, than laughter about maybe the missed signals or the um, how long it took for us all to to say what we had to say. Now, was Pete Buttigieg running for president? Was that a catalyst at all for you to get into politics? Um, it, it wasn't. You know, we we launched the campaign in November. Obviously, I, I was thinking about the campaign before November. Um, I think it did it did help in some ways for me to recognize that um, our country has come a long way from where it's been, uh, and that a openly gay man could run for president and have his husband by his side at every step. I think that was actually very uh, reassuring for me as I was thinking about this run. And um, it was, it, for, for someone like me who is an, an openly gay man, it was really an amazing experience to watch that happen. Um, but it didn't, it didn't change my mind about whether or not I could run here in Massachusetts. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. Why you thought that when he shaped a presidential campaign, he might keep his husband at bay? Well, you know, I, I think the the question is, are all 50 states of this country ready to see two men side by side holding hands on the stage um, after a debate, right? That's a really interesting question for our country to face, a country that still, um, you know, there's disproportionate numbers of folks in the LGBTQ community who are impacted by violence. Um, there are a large number of folks in the LGBTQ community who are affected by um, depression and suicidal thoughts, right? And I, I think it is really important for all of those people out here, out there in this country to see that. Um, and, you know, I, I don't think it was a known before uh, Mayor Pete ran for president that that, that would, is something that could happen on the stage in America all across the country. And now we know, right? Now we know that somebody could go out and do that. Um, and, I, you know, I'll say there are a lot of, a lot of people who have written sort of the obituary of the Pete Buttigieg for president campaign and, and whether um, he was too gay or not gay enough or whether he represented all gay people in this country. And I think that those are all stories in some ways. And, and the real thing is he was the man he is. He was the gay person he is. He was his definition of who he is. And that's all that matters. But as somebody who is openly gay, somebody who works with the LGBTQ community, it was really amazing to see that happen on the national stage. I think he'll run again too, probably. Uh, you know, I, I hope so. I hope he's got a long career ahead of him um, of making change and, and, and kind of pushing things forward. Who knows what he'll do? Um, but I, I think that He's he's young. <laughs> um, I should say that he's only a year older than me. He, I was going to uh, say you you might have a spot in his cabinet sometime, man. Keep <laughs> talking him up. <laughs> so you know, I think he's he's a young guy and definitely has a lot uh, ahead of him. Okay, quick segue, quick ripstick pivot. So right now, if you were if you got elected, right, a congressional candidate, and they were like, all right, first thing you got to do is you have to go make some sort of police force reform. And I don't mean to put you in the crazy hot seat here, but I know it's a really delicate issue. But what would you do practically, like first thing on this issue? Yeah. So um, there's a bill that is sitting in the Senate and in the House right now and is not moving forward. And it's a bill that was introduced by Senator Elizabeth Warren and Congresswoman Ayanna Pressley. Yeah, I saw this. That specifically calls out and says when someone is in medical distress, when the police are arresting someone or holding someone, if someone's in medical distress and acknowledges that they're in medical distress, that person should immediately receive medical care. And I think that that is an incredibly important reform that we can put in place, that we can pass through the House and the Senate, that we can get signed by a president, and that will actually bring some dignity and humanity into the way that police act all across this country. Um, it will get rid of this idea that it is okay to do a chokehold. It is not okay to do a chokehold. It will get rid of the idea that it is okay to push someone down to the ground and hold them down when they say, I can't breathe. That is not okay. And that, that is not okay for many reasons, but it is particularly not okay because you're putting someone intentionally into medical distress. And what we should be doing is helping those people, making sure that we get them the care that they need. What's the name of the bill? 
Um, so it's the it's based on the Andrew Curse Act, All which right, Andrew right. Curse um, was someone who was in medical distress um, before he died at the hands of the police and um, did not get the medical care that he needs. And it's being pushed by um, his family, who's really trying to say, never let this happen again, right? And so I, I want to see that. That if there's one thing I could do right now, it would be to push that through to bring some humanity and dignity and medical care into the way that the police act. <sighs> What was what was the hospital's response to some of the stuff that was going on downtown? Like, where, did you guys have to prepare for that at all? Or we did, um, and and I I spoke about it a little bit at the time because you know we are still experiencing surges from COVID. So there's an entire part of the emergency room entrance that is a tent for you to come in, be screened by people in full protective equipment so that we can take care of you if you are in respiratory distress from COVID. And then all of a sudden on the other side of the parking lot, we had to build another tent for people who were being sprayed with pepper spray or exposed to tear gas and were in respiratory distress because of what was happening on the streets. Those two things should never exist at the same time. That was probably right. such a shit show. Oh my God. That should never, ever happen. And the fact that it did shows just how challenged we are in this space uh, and how important it is that we make real substantive changes in the way that the police act in this country. We should not be using tear gas, period. But we should certainly not be using tear gas at a time of the worst respiratory pandemic we have ever experienced. Also, as a physician, though, like if you're putting your medical hat on and not your political hat, would you be dissuading people from protesting in the first place just because of the large congregation? It's, so it's been really hard. I, um, I, I recognize the need and the want and the desire to be in solidarity and to be out on the streets, to use our voices and to show our strength um, as we fight injustice that exists. I also recognize that large gatherings are the way that this virus spreads. Now, I think folks here in Massachusetts are really responsible and people are wearing masks. People are trying to maintain social distancing. Every rally and vigil has someone with hand sanitizer and ways to keep yourself disinfected so that you won't be spreading the virus. And I think that we're doing it in the right way. And we haven't therefore seen the increases in numbers. But um, yes, I cannot stop being an infectious disease doctor. And I recognize that a lot of people in one space does raise the concern that the virus will spread. Yeah. You don't want to sound like the villain right now. I totally understand. But have you noticed a spike in cases? I mean, when was, was it like two weeks ago now when they're, when they burned that transit car downtown? So it's been, you know, in total with all of the rallies and visuals, it's been about four weeks that we've seen sort of sustained large numbers of folks gathering outside. Well, the, um, I mean that that one night in Boston that got crazy. Yeah. So that was about two and a half weeks ago, right? And and we would expect by now that we would start to see increases in numbers from if there was an exposure and transmission that happened then, and, and we're not seeing those numbers increase in Massachusetts. Um, and so that's really promising and really reassuring. I think it's largely because people are wearing masks. It's because these are happening outside. It's because people are disinfecting their hands. And hopefully people who feel unwell are staying away from all of these things. So you'll probably gauge it over the next week to see if you see anything uptick. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, so who came up with your campaign slogan? Robbie for change. Uh Robbie for change. Uh, you know, a, a lot of smart people. Um, I think it's Come a pretty, on, man. <laughs> no, I, I think it's a pretty good slogan. It, um, it was, you know, some advisors that I had early on in the process, my husband, myself, um, some very good friends, all sort of thinking about what is it that we're trying to stand for here? Um, and I think there are two pieces of it. One is that we're talking about change. We're talking about bringing in a fresh perspective, bringing in a very different um, experience and skill set to Washington in this particular district. And then the second piece is, is the decision to use my name, Robbie, um, which I'll say is um, despite the fact that I went to all of this school, I have an MD and a PhD, not Tough a single guy. Yeah. Not a single one of my patients calls me Dr. Goldstein. Every single one of them calls me Robbie. Um, even if I don't tell them that that's my first name. 
So uh, it, it just is how people recognize me and how people refer to me. And so we're, we're putting it out there proudly that that's who I am and I am bringing change to this district. You're like the cool doctor. I guess so. I don't know. I don't know if that's it or if it's just that um, I look like a Robbie and so people call me Robbie. <laughs> hey, who chose uh, who chose yellow as the campaign color? It's very distinct. It is very distinct. Actually, so we have multiple campaign colors, but um, I like the yellow the best, which is why we have the science in yellow. <laughs> but I, I think it stands out. I think it stands out. It, it kind of pops. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people don't use yellow as a primary color. All you see yeah. nowadays is like obviously red, blue and green. Yes. Yeah. No, I like, I like it. I like it. It's sort of a um, distinctive part of who we are. Now question. Oh, my phone is about to die. I don't want to girls. I don't want to lose you. Sorry. I'm just going to plug this in real quick. All right, cool. We're plugged in. Hey girls, do you want to, do you want to ask a question? We can start with Riley. Uh, yeah, for sure. I actually have a question about your um, transgender health program at MGH. Yeah. So, Trump, President Trump, just recently um, released a new policy that revokes some healthcare protections for transgender patients. Will that affect your program at all? Yeah. Um, so, can I just explain that a little bit for the for the people who are watching, so that they know what exactly happened? Yep. Um, so this is um, something that happened now uh, a week and a half ago, where um, the Trump administration and Health and Human Services put out a final ruling on what's called Section 1557 of the Affordable Care Act. So Section 1557 of the Affordable Care Act is a really important section that basically says healthcare cannot discriminate based on, and then it lists a, long, a long number of things. So that includes things like race and ethnicity, um, but it also says you cannot discriminate based on sex. And for many, many years, from 2010 until basically 2016, that was interpreted to include sexual orientation and gender identity. Um, when the Trump administration took office, they redefined the word sex in section 1557 to say that it is only biologic sex but not sexual orientation and gender identity. And um, basically said there is no protection against discrimination in healthcare. So they finalized that ruling um, you know, a week and a half ago and said that in 90 days, it will take effect. So um, I'll say a few things about it. One- Hold on, uh, hold on. Sorry to interrupt you. Can you yeah. just simplify that a little bit? So you're saying that- <laughs> I mean, dude, you sound too smart. So there's a, you're saying there was a bill passed that now, I, I honestly can't even make it yeah. up. So, so the Affordable Care Act was passed in 2010, granted protections against discrimination in healthcare. Okay, what type of discriminations would you normally see based on sex? So, you know, um, it could mean anything from, you know, that a, a provider would say, I, I won't take care of somebody who's black, or I won't take care of somebody who speaks Spanish, or I won't take care of somebody who is transgender, right? And when the provider says that, or the healthcare institution says that, that discrimination is simply based on race, ethnicity, language, or sexual orientation or gender identity. Now, do you see a lot of that type of discrimination in the mass healthcare system? Probably not. So here, and this kind of gets back to that question, Massachusetts has actually amazing laws on the books that go above and beyond what the federal government has done and protect people in this state against discrimination. So even though President Trump has come out and said, we will in some ways allow discrimination, Massachusetts is saying, we will not allow discrimination in our state. So the program I, I um, direct at MGH, the Transgender Health Program, is within Massachusetts and is very much protected by the laws and the regulations of Massachusetts. And so our patients are, for the most part, safe, and we're able to continue to provide them care. But we still we see patients from out of state who get their insurance from out of state. We see people who maybe come to us for part of their care, but get their, the rest of their care in another state or another place. Those are the people we're really worried about. Those are the people that we need to fight for to make sure that they have the protections that they need. Okay. Did we answer the Trump question? Yeah, no, that was the perfect answer. Thank you. Okay, okay. cool. 
Lexi. Hi, Dr. Goldstein. A AKA young Barbara Walters, Lexi. <laughs> yes. Hi, Dr. Goldstein. I wanted to ask. Um, so over the past four years, we've seen a lot of progressive candidates challenge um, more moderate incumbents with um, a varying level of success. Why do you think that you can beat Stephen Lynch? Good question, Lexi. I like it. Definitely a Barbara Walters question. Um, you know, I, I, you're right that we have seen success and failure as progressive challengers have um, gone against incumbents. I think some of the notable successes are folks like Congresswoman Presley, um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Oh, they're Marie big. Biden. They are big AOC fans. Trust me. Right. These are, are huge successes. And some of the folks um, who have, have struggled and haven't been able to win are folks like Jessica Cisneros down in Texas, Morgan Harper in Ohio. We'll see what happens tomorrow with Jamal Bowman in New York. Um, but I, I actually think fundamentally, the race that I'm in against Stephen Lynch is different than many of those races. A lot of those races, it was somebody, a, a very progressive challenger, who was challenging someone who is kind of a mainstream Democrat, someone who's kind of right in the middle of the lane of the Democratic Party. What I'm doing here, um, and the race that I'm in, is a race against, in, in many ways, a very moderate, a very conservative Democrat. Um, Stephen Lynch is the most conservative Democrat in the Massachusetts delegation. He, you could argue he is one of the most conservative Democrats in the Democratic caucus in the House. Um, and so what I'm trying to do is, is say, we should elect Democrats that are Democrats. We should elect Democrats that believe in a woman's right to choose and put reproductive rights um, in the place that they need to be. We should, be. we should elect Democrats who want to expand health care. Stephen Lynch is someone who voted against the Affordable Care Act. We should be electing Democrats who are going to believe uh, and push forward democratic principles. Um, and so this, I think, is a fundamentally different race than many of the other ones that we've seen before. Now, Stephen Lynch been there for a long time, man. So, yeah. So, how on a marketing tip, how are you going to like out market his campaign? Like, what are some of the strategies? So, it's all about getting my name out there and getting the message of the campaign out there. Um, you know, I, I, you're you're totally right that we have a marketing um, battle here. We've got to make sure that many, many people across the Commonwealth and certainly within the eighth district know who I am and know what I stand for. I think if we can do that and when we do that successfully, people are willing to buy into this campaign and are eager to see somebody, as I was saying before, who's a, a true Democrat, somebody who really wants to push forward democratic principles and democratic values. They want to see that person represent Massachusetts. So, you know, we're doing what we can through, you know, appearances like this and talking to people online, virtual meet and greets, online advertising, um, relational organizing, having friends and family talk to their friends and family so that we can get my name out there as much as possible. Yeah, you just got to slam the social media because I'm sure they're not doing as much of it. You got to slam social, yeah. And, uh, I could say if people want to follow us on social media, it's at Robbie for Change on all the social media platforms. Yeah, and we'll get you in the description. We'll we'll work on your website too. Awesome. Um, shoot, I had a fire question, but I dropped it. Oh yeah, how? I mean, I think a big challenge, but there's opportunity for you to just incentivize people my age. I'm 24, who are like kind of starting to get into politics and understand the importance that's going to be your demographic, especially in the eighth district. Yeah. It's just, a, it's just a matter of getting them to the polls though. Yes. Yeah. You know, and, and I think there are a lot of um, examples of success there. I think, you know, some of those progressive challengers that we were just talking about were really successful because they activated young voters and got them to the polls. We're, you know, I've been endorsed by the, the local Sunrise chapters um, that are part of the district. And I think Sunrise is a great movement to really activate and engage young folks, specifically around climate change, something that I think anyone who's is really my age and younger recognizes that we're going to be living in this world on this planet uh, as the, the climate changes. And we're really activated around that experience in that moment. And you got uh, that, and you got that Yang shout out, baby, let's go. Yeah. Right. And so we've got um, Andrew Yang and humanity forward and the whole Yang gang kind of on board pushing forward. And, and so it is, it's about activating 
um, a new electorate, right? Folks who haven't voted before, or haven't been super engaged in politics, or a really engaged electorate around these issues that that matter to them. Dude, I love the Yang Gang. They're great. The Yang Gang has been really fantastic and super supportive, um, really helping us out to get our message out there, you know, making phone calls, sending text messages, doing the work of the campaign. I mean, that's who lined this up. Yeah, they're they're really, um, you know, they're eager to get that message out there and to elect candidates who, just like Andrew Yang, are talking about humanity and dignity and really pushing forward with um, those types of policies. Yeah. Shouts out to Melissa. Yeah. Shouts out, oh, shouts out to your press secretary, Megan, too. She's great. She's great. <laughs> um, very on the ball. Sometimes the yeah. political press secretaries are really hard to deal with, man. I'm going to be honest with you. Yeah. I will be honest that my entire life would fall apart if Megan went away. She is um, really the only person that is single-handedly keeping me going right now. <laughs> Shouts out to Megan. There's, there's this aura with the Yang Gang, which is like very refreshing. And it's, I think it kind of parallels with your campaign too. I think kids my age, and I say kids loosely again, I'm 24. I think they want a sophisticated candidate that can like speak to issues that we actually understand. Nobody wants the crossword puzzle every time a politician talks. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. You know, I think people are ready for um, candidates who are going to tell them the truth. Candidates who are going to speak to them in a conversational way about issues that are important to them instead of, you know, sort of hiding behind political speak, hiding behind the jargon. Exactly. Right. Um, and I think we're seeing a lot of folks across the country that are kind of taking on that mantle of let's let's change what the definition of politician is. Let's bring in some new people and some different perspectives, people with really different backgrounds. Let's get them um, into Washington because what's happening now, it's not working. Right. So we've got to we've got to make some change. I don't know how it worked in the past that there were old politicians who could speak so faux inspirational like with like these like crazy speeches, like nobody talks like that. I don't, how do they do, how do they get people pumped? I mean, I well, loved RFK's speeches. Like I, I loved his documentary, but I was like, if that dude talked like this, like now people would be like, what did you just say? Yeah. But you know, you look back just four years ago when president Obama spoke and I, and I think you know, he had an incredible way of using words and uh, motivating people with his language and his tone and his delivery. And it does matter in politics. It's really important that, that people are inspired by their politicians and inspired by folks in government because we've got to get people to be energized and engaged, right? We were just talking about this. How do we get young people engaged in politics? A lot of it is inspiring them and showing them that we can make a difference. We can make change if we work together. And sometimes the messenger is really important there. Hey slugs. Yeah. Let's I'm hear here. let's hear it, dude. I have a question. Um, so I think you have a really interesting and unique perspective as a doctor and a politician, especially now as we're fighting coronavirus and there's a lot of political confusion going on. So who were your role models as you have been growing both of your careers? Mm. Um, you know, I have amazing role models in medicine, which I'll name some names, but I, I'm not sure folks on the call will necessarily know who they are. Um, but I'll call out um, Katrina Armstrong, who's the chair of medicine at Mass General, who has taught me probably more than uh, any other person has and who's been um, an amazing, amazing mentor in my career development, not just in how to be a good physician and how to work in a hospital, but how to think how to think differently, how to think well, um, and how to talk about that message piece, right? To make sure that you're messaging things appropriately. Um, there have been politicians that I have looked to that have also helped me as I've grown, both as a physician, but certainly as someone who is a candidate for office. Um, I, I find myself oftentimes falling down uh, a rabbit hole of Elizabeth Warren speeches uh, and listening to her talk 
and listening to her ability to explain economics in real language that people understand, that is data-driven, um, and her policies to me really just sing. They, they make a lot of sense. Um, I, I find my, the same thing happening with Congresswoman Presley and listening to, to her ability to weave in evidence with community voices in a way that I haven't seen a politician do in, in many, many years. Um, and I think even more locally, there are folks that I, I look up to in politics, folks like um, Representative Nick Gallagardo, who represents parts of Jamaica Plain and, and West Roxbury and, um, and Brookline, and Representative Liz Miranda, who I think are new to politics in some ways. They're both freshman representatives in the state house, but who are just gifted in their ability to communicate policy, to work with people on both sides of the aisle, um, and to really drive forward a progressive mission that is focused on justice. Um, and so I, I am really in awe of those two women and, and what they're able to do. Sound like a pretty far sales pitch for endorsement. I see what's going on here, man. <laughs> Well, well, one of those people, um, Representative Nick Allegard, has already endorsed the campaign. So, but you want, uh, I know you want that Warren endorsement. I know it's um, you know I, I think that there are a lot of reasons why why um, Senator Warren and Congresswoman Presley might feel that I'm like minded with them and that they might you know share the message and the mission of this campaign. <laughs> yeah, I'll right. let them make their own decisions. Hey, that that would be a fire boost for the campaign. I know that much. Absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, Massachusetts politics is fun, man. Hey, Slugs, that answer your question? Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, one final question. It is Gay Pride Month. So, like, how can we celebrate Gay Pride? How could I go celebrate Gay Pride? Yeah. So, um, there's no parade this year, obviously, right? There's no parade, right? We didn't have a parade. We instead had a, a really powerful vigil for Black trans lives. Um, and I actually think it was very well done and, and so powerful in its message. You know, I, I'll say two things about pride. So the first thing I'll say is that we should not forget that pride started out of Stonewall, which was a riot against injustice. And so to celebrate pride is to celebrate that we all struggle against injustice and that we all must lift up voices together and push forward. So I think what we're doing this June in the way that we are coming together at vigils and rallies and marches is pride. It is the same message, right? It is about fighting injustice. So that's the first thing I'll say. The second thing is that Pride Month is a month when we recognize the work that we do the rest of the year. So yes, we put up our rainbow flags in June and we, we oftentimes have a parade and um, we kind of talk about it a lot in June, but that doesn't mean that we don't do the work in July through May. We continue to do the work of making our spaces more affirming, welcoming LGBTQ folks into our communities, um, making sure that we are having those conversations. So just because we can't do it in June doesn't mean that in October and November, we shouldn't be having the same conversations. Now, are there any LGBTQ owned businesses in Boston that you know of? I mean, like fire restaurants, you know some? Um, I know some great restaurants that um, are owned by LGBTQ folks. I might get in trouble by calling out some and not others. So I want to be one shout about doing that. But, you know, I'll, I'll say a good friend of mine um, owns um, Haley Henry Wine Bar that's um, right in downtown Crossing. And I think it's a great restaurant, um, great woman-owned business, LGBTQ-owned business um, that does the right thing for its employees. Sounds um, expensive. Um, you know, it's, it is, you go in and get a glass of wine and it doesn't have to be that expensive. And it's about sort of supporting local communities. I think, um, there's a restaurant in Southie called Fox and the Knife. Have you heard of that? I have, yeah. I, be I believe the chef Karen Cake is LGBTQ. Um, I believe so too, but we should check ourselves on yeah, that before we don't quote me. Yeah. Um, okay, man. Do you have fun? I did. It was great. All right. So yeah. Hey, I had a blast. And I think what you're doing is like really, really interesting. And hopefully we can like meet in person. Awesome. Yes. Yeah, one of these days, right? One of these days we'll be able to actually do an interview in person as opposed to over Zoom. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, we have two ending bits. Okay. The first one is called GDP sales mode. I'm going to grab my phone 
I'm going to turn on the timer and I'm going to give you 40 seconds to pitch whatever you'd like to pitch. Okay. Obviously, in your case, this is pretty easy in terms of topic. You want to okay. probably pitch your campaign, but I'm not yeah. going to tell you what to do. <laughs> and then when there are 10 seconds left, I'm going to put my hand up. Okay. And then I'm going to give you a hard cutoff at 40. Perfect. Just give me a sec. Okay. Three, two, one, sales mode, go. Great. So hopefully people liked what they heard today. And if they did, they should check out the website, which is robbieforchange.com, R-O-B-B-I-E-F-O-R change.com. There, there are a couple of important links to go to. One, join Team Robbie, where you can sign up for our emails. Two, volunteer for Team Robbie, where you can do phone banks and text banks and tell folks about the campaign. And then three, for those of you who have the ability, there is a link to make a contribution to the campaign because this is a campaign that's 100% grassroots funded. Um, And so anyone who might be able to make a contribution will help us take on an entrenched incumbent as we work towards the September 1st primary. Done. Nice. You made it in two seconds. If you weren't a doctor and you weren't an up-and-coming politician, I think you'd be a salesperson. (laughs) Maybe. I don't know. I mean, you'd make big bucks, man. We'll start a company. Um, Okay. This is how we start and end the show. You say, hi, your name. Robbie Goldstein. And this is my golden hour. Directly after, no break. Hi, your name. And that was my golden hour. Great. So you want to get Hi. I'm Robbie Goldstein, and this is my golden hour. And then you say the second one after that. Okay, great. So it's this is and that was. Okay. And I'm just going to give you a quick preface about 94% of our guests butcher this. Perfect. I'm probably going to be in that 94%. That's great. Hopefully they all vote for you. Hi, I'm Robbie Goldstein, and this is my golden hour. Hi, I'm Robbie Goldstein, and that was my golden hour. Well executed, man. Perfect. Hey, um, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for having me on. And listen, I'm going to connect Megan with a couple other podcasts in the city that I think would be really good. Awesome. And and then I'll also communicate with you guys. I'm going to get you and Megan some new sweatshirts. (laughs) Amazing. Love it. And hey, when are we going to drop this, guys? Wednesday, Thursday, probably? Okay. Yeah. So I'll send you over some clips and stuff too. Okay. Perfect. Love it. Thank you so much for doing this. Yeah. You're the man. Good luck, man. Enjoy the filming on the boat. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) I'll try. (laughs) All right, man. Have a good one. You too.